Much like topics in previous chapters, the talk about the loss of freedom in regard to markets is not quite accurate. Although they have often been much freer than they are today, America has never truly had free markets. The causes for this are multiple. Everything that we've discussed already from ideology to graft, uh, war and crisis, socialistic schemes, bank fraud, big business, big government, the list is endless. But it can be boiled down to covetousness and greed armed with the guns of government. Mistakes abounded from day one. The first pilgrim colony attempted to enforce a communistic society. In months, the communistic storehouse was strained. It didn't take long for, for some to learn that they could slack off in working and yet receive the same amount of rationed victuals. And meanwhile, those who did work hard to produce more also received the same amount, while those who slacked and ate, of course, ate the extra fruits of the laborers of those who worked harder. Soon, everyone slacked off and the storehouse went empty. Half of the settlers died in the first winter. The governors learned the hard way, though, uh, slowly. It took three years into the settlement when they finally took the advice of the farmers who were doing the work. Land was divided into private plots. Greater prosperity followed almost immediately. The story is well known. What's lesser known is that many of the elements of this quickly privatized property economy still remained under the common ownership and government control and was only improved really after about 1675. The path toward great wealth in colonial America was often through, uh, for individuals anyway, state-sanctioned monopolies. In fact, many of the colonies, as we've already talked about, were founded as land-grant charters. These were in themselves meant to be monopolistic sources of wealth. The ports were controlled, tariffs were imposed, merchants depended upon the crown to protect them from competitors in virtually every way. So this state and big business alliance uh, that was there was called mercantilism, and in many ways it still exists in, the, in our economy today. It was criticized by Adam Smith, who published his book, The Wealth of Nations, in the same year America declared her independence. Despite the ascendancy of Smith's views of freer economics, many early Americans favored the British model of mercantilism, not the least of which were Hamilton, Washington, and virtually the whole Federalist Nationalist Party. Indeed, as we saw earlier, under the topic of states' rights, Washington, Hamilton, and Madison, among others, colluded to establish corporate welfare, which is essentially a form of mercantilism in which a few businesses get the special monopolistic favor and subsidy of the government. They colluded to make that the rule, essentially, in the new nationalized government. In the first ever State of the Union address, Washington favored again, as we've noted before, the establishment of a state-funded military-industrial complex during peacetime, including manufacturing, uh, Indian suppression, agriculture, commerce, transportation, postal services, science and education, as well as public finance. Here are his words. The advancement of agriculture, commerce, and manufacturers by all proper means will not, I trust, need recommendation but I cannot forbear intimating to you the expediency of giving effectual encouragement, that is money, as well to the introduction of new and useful inventions from abroad as to the exertions of skill and genius in producing them at home, and of facilitating the intercourse between the distant parts of our country by a due attention to the post office and post roads. 
nor am I less persuaded that you will agree with me in opinion that there is nothing which can better deserve your patronage than the promotion of science and literature. Knowledge is in every country the surest basis of public happiness, in one in which the measures of government receive their impression so immediately from the sense of the community as in ours. It is proportionably essential. Whether this desirable object will be best promoted by affording aids to seminaries of learning already established, by the institution of a national university, or by any other expedients, will be well worthy of a place in the deliberations of the legislature. Washington finished his speech with a propagandistic nod to the common good which any modern liberal would love. Quote, the welfare of our country is the great object to which our cares and efforts ought to be directed, and I shall derive great satisfaction from a cooperation with you in the pleasing though arduous task of ensuring to our fellow citizens the blessings they have a right to expect from a free, efficient, and equal government. Thus was the precedent of America as a welfare warfare state solidified in her infancy, although the welfare at this point was mainly corporate welfare. These beginnings were mild compared to what would come, but represented the very same principle in action. The principle of subsidizing certain endeavors uh, was gradually expanded to cover more special interest groups, etc. After all, how many things can be justified under the, quote, great object of the welfare of our country? If a little funding for education is a good thing here, why not a whole lot of it? Why not compulsory government education? If a little funding for postal roads is a good thing, then why not transportation in general? Especially since the promotion of commerce was established already in general, why not extend that principle to cover more of the convenient transportation of the goods for those subsidized groups? Indeed, that's exactly what happened. Roads, bridges, canals, locks, dams, and eventually the mother of all public-private schemes of the 19th century, railroads. Both major parties embraced these schemes from early on. Jefferson's Treasury Secretary proposed a system of tax-funded waterways. Nationalists like Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams favored a whole system of internal improvements, including transportation in general. Early turnpike projects gained state charters and in some cases state funding. The Erie Canal was built based on state bonds floated under the persuasion of DeWitt Clinton. Uh, again, the, the author of the book Enterprising Americans, John Chamberlain, concludes candidly that the American people, though they had resented British mercantilism, were not averse to government help when it came to getting their goods to market. As in Britain, the pertinacity of businessmen seeking a, profity, a profit contributed significantly to what modern economists uh, choose to call the public sector of the economy. And again, this was often, if not almost always, justified by some appeal to the common good or to the welfare of the nation. Well, as the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, the sayers have neglected to mention that the pavers are government employees and those good intentions are funded via hell's most egregious abuse, the public treasury. No area of American life displays this abuse more systematically than the progressive tyranny that has ratcheted up from the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. It's Article 1, Section 8, Third Clause. 
The article empowers Congress, quote, to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. The abuse has grown most particularly in regard to commerce, quote, among the several states. Throughout American history, Congress has employed this clause gradually to expand federal control over every area of life. For the most part, the courts have approved. We've said quite a bit already in this project about John Marshall legislating Hamilton's and essentially the Federalists in general agenda from the bench and how this included centralized control over state power in courts, in banking, in taxation, and in other issues, including commerce. The constitutional issue came to the fore uh, not too long ago in a 95 Supreme Court case which rehearsed a, a decent amount of the history in this regard. The case was United States versus Lopez, 1995. Sure enough, the history begins with John Marshall. It was Marshall who vehemently upheld Congress's right to regulate interstate commerce. In 1824, he decided Gibbons versus Ogden. This landmark case confirmed that control of commerce was, pri was a primary motive of the centralizing instrument itself, the Constitution. Now, earlier, we reviewed Madison's comments in regard to New York as the real purposes of the Constitution, quote, uh, as Madison said, which was among other things to take from that state the important power over its commerce, end of quote. In Gibbons versus Ogden, we hear Marshall summarizing the very same sentiment, quote, few things were better known than the immediate causes which led to the adoption of the present Constitution. And he, that is the plaintiff on the nationalist side of the case, thought nothing clearer than that the prevailing motive was to regulate commerce. The great objects were commerce and revenue, and they were objects indissolubly connected. Again, Marshall says, quote, in the history of the times, it was accordingly found that the great topic urged on all occasions as showing the necessity of a new and different government was the state of trade and commerce. Marshall then reviews historical evidence backing this claim, and he makes this conclusion, quote, We do not find in the history of the formation and adoption of the Constitution that any man speaks of a general concurrent power in the regulation of foreign and domestic trade as still residing in the states. The very object intended more than any other was to take away such power. These kind of quotations are multiplied throughout that decision. Marshall saw it important to solidify national control in this area and specifically to limit the role of the individual states. For states to share in that power, Marshall concluded, quote, is insidious and dangerous. He warned of a slippery slope, again quoting, if it be admitted, no one can say where it will stop. Well, of course, slippery slopes can run both ways, can't they? The same argument can be put against Marshall's centralized system. Once Congress begins to regulate this and regulate that aspect of commerce, no one can say where it will stop. I mean, it's one thing to strike down shipping monopolies that one state grants to cargo ships traveling between waters between states, which was the subject of dispute in Gibbons. It's quite another thing to argue, for example, that the federal government can, t can intrude into local schools based on defining education as commerce declaring potential crime in the schools as a threat to the insurance industry, commerce, and the idea that any threat to education is therefore a threat to the economy in general, 
And yet this is exactly the argument that was put forth in the 1995 case, U.S. versus Lopez. Thankfully, the Supreme Court acknowledged, finally, there has to be some limit on the federal power. The government had gone too far in, in regard to interstate commerce uh, in this case, and the court decided against the U.S. in this case. Nevertheless, Marshall himself had expressed that this power is unlimited. Quote, this power, like all others vested in Congress, is complete in itself, may be exercised to its utmost extent, and acknowledges no limitations other than, than are prescribed in the Constitution. The Lopez decision rehearses the long train of compromises, abuses, and usurpations which have grown up around that constitutional power since Marshall's 1824 decision, and I want to read quite a bit of it to you. Quote, for nearly a century thereafter, the Court's Commerce Clause decisions dealt but rarely with the extent of Congress' power, and almost entirely with the Commerce Clause as a limit on state legislation that discriminated against interstate commerce. In 1887, Congress enacted the Interstate Commerce Act, and in 1890, Congress enacted the Sherman Antitrust Act, as amended. These laws ushered in a new era of federal regulation under the commerce power. When cases involving these laws first reached this court, we imported from our negative commerce clause cases uh, the approach that Congress could not regulate activities such as production and manufacturing and mining. In other words, even though this legislation increased tyranny, it still formally retra it retained a view of limits upon Congress's power, but it was the first step towards serious compromise, again quoting. Simultaneously, however, the court held that wherever the interstate and intrastate aspects of commerce were so mingled together that full regulation of interstate commerce required incidental regulation of intrastate commerce, the Commerce Clause authorized such a regulation. This arrangement lasted only until FDR's New Deal legislation moved to enforce labor and wage laws, and another new era was in view. The courts at first struck FDR's laws down. Quote, in ALA Schechter Poultry Court versus the United States, 1935, the court struck down regulations that fixed the hours and wages of individuals employed by an interstate business because the activity being regulated related to interstate commerce only indirectly. Activities that affected interstate commerce directly were within Congress's power. Activities that, it, that affected interstate commerce indirectly were beyond Congress's reach. The justification for this formal distinction was rooted in the fear that otherwise, quote, there would be virtually no limit to federal power and for all practice, uh, practical purposes we should have completely centralized government. This decision was actually a death blow to FDR's New Deal legislation for a moment. FDR and the progressive tyrants had no use for that limit to the federal power in any way. And this is when the great pressure came on the court. Uh, sadly, the same court that rejected the New Deal as unconstitutional in 1935 melted under enough pressure by 1937 to allow for a radical reinterpretation. Quote, Two years later, in the watershed case of NLRB versus Jones and Laughlin Steel Corp., the court upheld the National Labor Relations Act against a Commerce Clause challenge and in the process departed from the distinction between direct and indirect effects on interstate commerce.
the court held that intrastate activities that, quote, have such a close and substantial relation to interstate commerce that their control is essential or appropriate to protect that commerce from burdens and obstructions, end of quote, within the second court case, are within Congress's power to regulate. The dikes were thus exploded, and thus came the flood. Quoting again, in U.S. versus Darby, 1941, the court upheld the Fair Labor Standards Act, stating the power of Congress over interstate commerce is not confined to the regulation of commerce among the states. It extends to those activities intrastate, which so affect interstate commerce, or the exercise of the power of Congress over it, as to make regulation of them appropriate means uh, to the attainment of that legitimate end, the exercise of the granted power of Congress to regulate interstate commerce. In Wickard versus Filburn, the court upheld the application of amendments to the Agricultural, uh, Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1938 to the production and consumption of homegrown wheat. The Wickard court explicitly rejected earlier distinctions between direct and indirect effects on interstate commerce, stating, quote, even if the appellee's activity be local and though it may not be regarded as commerce, it may still, whatever its nature, be reached by Congress if it exerts a substantial economic effect on interstate commerce. And this irrespective of whether such effect is what might have some earlier time been defined as direct or indirect. In other words, the New Deal court completely ignored judicial precedent up to that point. The Wickard Court emphasized that although Filburn's own contributions to the demand for wheat uh, may have been trivial by itself, that was not enough to remove him from the scope of federal regulation, whereas here his contribution taken together with that of many others uh, similarly situated is far from trivial. Jones and Laughlin Steele, Darby and Wickard ushered in this era of Commerce Clause jurisprudence that, quote, greatly expanded previously defined authority of Congress under that clause. In part, this was a recognition of the great changes that had occurred in the way business was carried out in this country. Enterprises that had once been local or at most regional in nature had become national in scope. But the doctrinal change also reflected a view that earlier Commerce Clause cases artificially had constrained the authority of Congress to regulate interstate commerce. Thus, the Commerce Clause has provided us the avenue to tyranny. It's a highway to hell. And sure enough, Marshall's grant of unlimited power was based upon the same allegedly good intention. Quote, the only remedy has been applied which the case admits of, and that of a frank and candid cooperation for the general good. Gabriel Kolko's book, The Triumph of Conservatism, and by conservatism he means big business, big government partnership, not the, the political moniker, makes it very clear. It was the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the Morgans, etc., who used the interstate commerce regulation to secure fat business contracts and monopolies at the expense of taxpayers and small businesses, and all in the name of trust-busting, stabilization, controlling costs. During this era, Kolko puts it this way, Quote, the federal government, rather than being a source of negative opposition, always represented a, a potential source of economic gain. The railroads, of course, had used the federal and local governments for subsidies and land grants, but various other industries appreciated the desirability of proper uh, tariffs 
direct subsidies, and in a few instances, government-owned natural resources or monopolistic privileges possible in certain federal charters or regulations. It was perfectly logical that industrialists who had spent years attempting to solve their economic problems by centralization should have been willing to resort to political centralization as well. And this is exactly what they did. Beginning with the creation of the Interstate Commerce Commission in 1887, as the Lopez case uh, above already noted, the big business magnates used government regulation to squeeze out their smaller competitors. Once the bureaucracies were in place, it made little difference who or what party took office. And thus, when the conservative Democrat Grover Cleveland took office, Andrew Carnegie's partner, Henry Clay Frick, glossed, quote, I am very sorry for President Harrison, but I cannot see that our interests are going to be affected one way or the other by the change in administration. Colco notes the resilience of free enterprise despite increasing encroachments from the big corporate, big finance state alliance. After surveying the industries of iron and steel and oil, automobiles, agricultural machinery, telephones, copper and meat packing up until 1890, he's able to conclude that decentralized competition ruled the day despite efforts of major financiers to consolidate and monopolize the trades. Quote, the failure of the merger movement to attain control over the economic conditions in the various industries was brought about by the inability of the consolidated firms to attain sufficient technological advantages or, econo or, or economies of size over their smaller competitors, contrary to the common belief and the promises of promoters. The big financiers, J.P. Morgan and company, etc., would not give up their quests for total domination simply because they couldn't win fairly in a free market. They had no qualms whatsoever about turning to government intervention and regulation. And thus, in the period immediately following the failed merger movement that Colco describes, which was the beginning of the 20th century, we saw a rise in progressive government domination. Indeed, quote, the dominant fact of American political life at the beginning of this century was that big business led the struggle for the federal regulation of the economy. So we return to our earlier statement about covetousness and greed armed with the guns of government. Big business interests simply have used government coercion as a means of gaining market advantage and forcing out smaller competitors. And the big business was not shy about admitting their agenda clearly. For example, J.P. Morgan owned the agricultural machine company International Harvester. After Teddy Roosevelt established the Bureau of Corporations, designed allegedly to investigate and expose any monopolistic powers on the part of big corporations, uh, International came under suspicion and investigation was ordered. Of course, the whole matter was a joke. International already had a backroom deal with the administration that an informal warning would be given to correct uh, it would give time to correct any illegal activity, illegal. Indeed, International's lawyer told the administration that the company welcomed exposure, showing actual losses on the company's behalf because, quote, then they would have just ground for raising American prices. And the company was quite serious for raising prices with sanction from the Federal uh, Bureau's reports, quote, to prevent attacks from less friendly parties and as a general shield. Noticeable also in this respect were the massive railroad companies, 
not only had they used federal and local governments for subsidies and land grants from very early on, but railroads themselves had been the leading advocates of extended federal legislation after 1887. Indeed, the railroads wanted to use federal authority to guarantee their pooling agreements and thus free them from the disruptive pressures and temptations of the market. You can find that described in Stephen Scalronit's book, Building a New American State, published in 1982. The Railroad State Alliance alone needs its own detailed study in this regard. So what's been said so far here is a large part of the reason that it's such a joke when leftists today rail against free market principles as the cause of historic inequality and class warfare and all of our economic woes. Because there's been very little free market to begin with. This country hasn't had free markets very often at all, historically speaking. And the capitalism, so-called, of the big bank government collusion that we have today is hardly free market capitalism. It's rigged state capitalism, which is to say it's socialistic to a large degree. And this arrangement extends into every industry and trade from finance to agriculture. Far from basic biblical protection of private property and the enforcement of contracts, our governments have too often redistributed property in various ways, sometimes under the guise of free market capitalism, and have led the way in ignoring and disrupting contracts. Now we've seen here only a smidgen of, the American, of how the American governments have done so. Uh, the solution is not what the leftists say. It's not more government control and wealth redistribution. We've had enough of that already. Leftists simply want to take a, a change, make a change in the recipients of the state welfare from the corporations to the masses and really they don't even want to do that. Uh, nor is this to say that big corporations are inherently evil in themselves. They're not necessarily. Proponents of the free market, however, want to establish true private property and abolish the state-enforced welfare scheme altogether for the masses and for the pet businesses. And we'll discuss a little more about doing so in the next section.